Welcome to Counterintelligence. This is Eric LeVay. Today's guest is Mother Jones journalist Allie Breland. Thanks to Patreons Dana Berry, Andre Donka, William Healy, Angela Jackson, Zacharias Zizkor Kaminsky, Sasha Millstone, Craig Pierce, Greg Schneider, and Jason Zimmerman. Allie Breland, welcome back to Counterintelligence. How are you, man? Hey, I'm super good. Thanks for having me. How you been? Yeah, I've been, uh, well, you know, just getting by. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, that's how the last 10 shows have begun. It's the literally every guest. It's like, uh, how's it going? Well, you know, it's going, it's going okay. <laughs> Yeah, how good can it be? I guess. Yeah, you know, it's a global pandemic, but I'm doing uh, I'm doing the best I can. How, how about yourself, man? Yeah, I mean, like as a kid, uh, pandemic was one of my like top fears. So this isn't as bad as I thought it would be. Really? No, no kidding. Yeah, uh, um, it was like general end of the world, and then it like reduced to pandemic after I learned what Ebola was. Uh, this is like pre Ebola actually becoming like a thing that almost came to the U.S. or was here, but. Um, yeah, I just like learned about the black plague and I was like, I don't ever want this to be my life. <laughs> Did you, uh, you think that influenced your decision to go into journalism? Just, I, I feel like those, some of those things might be connected in some way. What do, what do you think about that? Um, maybe I think it reflects like a kind of paranoid thinking that like, um, lends itself well to, um, a few fields, like chiefly, I think like military or policing. Um, but then like, um, also like having that sort of foresight, I guess is like good for journalism too. And for those tuning in, uh, Ali is a reporter at mother Jones, uh, an expert in disinformation, misinformation and technology. Uh, and today we're talking about, I think this word, I'm going to just say first in all, in all honesty, I don't think I ever used or even knew this word before the 2016 election, which is, uh, we're here to talk about bots. Uh, let me ask you something. You're an expert in this stuff. When was roughly the first time where you knew what bots were or just knew about the concept of bots, Sally? Probably like not too, too far before that. Like I think that now when like the term botnet comes up, you just think of like a massive like internet bots swarming and trolling people. <laughs> um, but like I first learned that term um, like in regard to this thing called like I think it's like the Mirai or the Marie botnet, which was like a network of like hacked like iot devices like refrigerators and camcorders that would be used to like carry out like massive um i want to say like ddos attacks that like brought like massive websites like netflix and new york times down that happened in like 2015 or 2016 but yeah no like um i'd only heard of the term bots like a little bit prior to that and like not in the sort of like same super nefarious way that we treat it with now Right. It's a word that seems to be used in many different contexts. And I was thinking about that when I was reading the article that you sent me that, and we're going to talk about your upcoming piece for Mother Jones as well. But I was reading that article and it seemed that part of the discussion was that the word is not correctly applied or it's misapplied. And I was also thinking there's another side to that, which is that I think, and you can comment on this as a writer, I actually think it's okay for words to be, sometimes words evolve and are used interchangeably. So I don't, I know, I know as journalists, we have to be specific, but I also think I understand why the word is, uh, is used in different contexts. So I was curious, maybe just from your perspective, I mean, Ali, how do you define uh, what a bot is exactly? Um, yeah, I guess the basic definition is like a bot would be um, an automated account that, and it's like purest sense, it'd be like a, an automated account. Uh, that's like programmed to do like some kind of um, response for and like there can be really normal bots like 
I remember in like the earliest days of Twitter, like just, just post like 2010, I remember tweeting about pizza and like several like random pizza accounts from like different pizza restaurants across the country, just like liking the tweet or <laughs> tweeting at me. Um, and so that's like a super innocuous bot that's just weird. And then there's there's bots that can be programmed to like automatically comment with like negative harassing things every time like a certain presidential candidate tweets. Um, but I think that those kinds of bots are not as common as people realize and the sort of misinformation campaigns that we like associate bots with um, are often like more complicated. Um, like there's like quote unquote like cyborg bots that like where like a, a human will be typing real things that like a massive accounts will, 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 will tweet out or um, there's different like processes by which like normal humans like typing things out on Twitter or other websites can be augmented uh, in a way that's not like a pure bot. That's a great way to describe it. And what I take away from that and just is just how complex this stuff is like and that's part of identifying bots or combating bots. You have to know what a bot is. And that's that's what seems so confusing. It's like it's automated, but then people also use it to describe like the Russian troll farm. Uh, do you like just to be clear? A bot, on its technical term, is completely automated. Like, if a person's behind it, would that still would that be characterized as a bot still? Yeah, it's just like a person like impersonating something else, or like um, you could maybe make the argument that like a cyborg like network is like a type of bot. But like, I guess that deviates from just the pure definition of like uh, a bot, which is like stems comes from the word robot, and like robots or anything that are like pre-programmed to do certain things. If like the reason like a an RC car, for example, is like not a robot is because like there's a human controlling it. If you pre-program an RC car to operate on its own and take a specific path, then it becomes a robot. There's some great on Twitter, which is uh, sort of where bots are often associated with, although I'm sure they're, you know, used on other platforms. But I have a couple of favorite bots. My favorite one is the Africa by Toto bot. <laughs> have you seen that one? No, I haven't. It's just this like super like I I honestly consider it art. I do because it's like oh, it's in a way it's a kind of performance art. It's a bot that just tweets the lyrics to Toto's Africa, um, and I picture like you talked about like dystopian, the end of the world. Like I just picture even if this planet was like wiped, you know, everyone was wiped off the planet, which sometimes seems like it's possible that this bot would just keep going endlessly with with the Africa lyrics. That just makes me laugh. <laughs> uh, yeah. It really and there's a couple other ones. There's a there's a magical realism bot, I think it's called. Um that just tweets these wild kind of I guess they th- that one's more complex because it's literally come on, coming up with things that sound like they're <laughs> written by a person that are kind of complex, but it's just a a cyborg. I mean, do you have any thoughts on just that? I mean, how how weird is this stuff? It's super weird. It's like also there's some really interesting cases. One of my favorite accounts is um, that's a bot. I forget the name of it offhand, but like it's this Twitter bot that um, people I think have done investigations and like figured out um, who like uh, they figured out like Bitcoin wallets associated with different alt right and neo Nazis. And so each time money is transacted, transa- transacted from or in and out of that, that account. Uh, or the accounts that they have like names tied to um, it will tweet so it'll be like I don't know like James also or like Richard Spencer um, has received like X USD in Bitcoin and like the total amount in the account is like X um, like I think that's like super useful and fascinating to watch for sure 
That's amazing. And I mean, talk about a resource for journalists. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, how did, I don't know if you know the answer, but how the heck would they find out who the whole point of Bitcoin is that it's supposed to be used anonymously to mask the user? I mean, how, do you know how they figured that out? Yeah. So Bitcoin is like pretty anonymous, but there are like ways to de-anonymize it. Like, uh, you like your wallet generally, or like however many number of wallets you have, will have like a specific ID that's attached to them. Um, and so at any point, like if you leave any clues about like who owns that specific like code, it's like a string of numbers is your wallet. Like, like if, Richard Spencer is like, hey, like because he's been kicked off every other platform, I don't think you could Venmo him. He can't use PayPal. Um, so like I'm sure at some point he's like posted his his uh, Bitcoin address. Um, and like and so that that's like a way to find it. Um, there's actually like forensics teams that can go through and like sometimes it's truly impossible. If you give no clues, like there's there's no paper trail, then like they'll never be able to find you. Um, but like there is ways for people to to like sort of leave a trace and every sort of Bitcoin transaction has a whole paper trail that runs through it. So even though you can't tell like fully where the money is like actually ending up, you can see its entire lifespan and like where it goes, even if you don't know like what the who owns the address you can see every single address that's ever touched right that's the uh, blockchain i believe if i have that yeah correct. exactly yeah yeah, yeah. And that's how yeah. it's like altered yeah there's like yeah. other actually more anonymous currencies but i guess it's like a separate episode <laughs> yeah i have actually have one planned on that but uh maybe we'll maybe we'll do that one too um, <laughs> you should talk to a, a real expert on that i can i can just like put me in the right direction <laughs> no you know you know plenty actually we the last episode was literally supposed to be about that but he um he had to cancel unexpectedly uh, so uh that's funny you brought that up uh, <laughs> that's too bad that's the stuff's like super fascinating for sure and like definitely like extremely complex like i really don't know much more than i just said <laughs> no, no, no no you know plenty <laughs> Uh, and I guess they could also track it by, let's say, someone like um, a Spencer or whoever is paying. It's 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 really like tracking any financial transaction. If you're paying the same people, it starts to show a pattern, which investigators or journalists can pretty easily track. I think. Yeah, exactly. Um, there are ways like around that for sure. Like, I mean, it's probably in your best interest to like have multiple wallets. But even then, like, if you do anything between them, then you can potentially give yourself away. So it's like. In the way that, like, I don't know, like, I guess, like, you can cover your tracks if you're walking in the snow by, like, doubling back. Um, there's, like, ways around it, but none of them are foolproof. It's sort of comical, too, that these guys, there's a, as you just said, there's an easy solution, which is just to, all it is is just to not use the same wallet, which is super easy. But I guess that's, maybe the grift, maybe they can't grift as much if the wallet, because the whole point yeah. is that they need money, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and also, too, like, I mean unless they're committing crimes like it's probably annoying for them for people to know their moves like that but like at the end of the day like it's probably not causing them like a huge amount of inconvenience um but these people do sketchy things so like at some point it probably ends up like giving away certain things that that you mentioned going back to bots i mean that's a great resource and i have to i'm gonna have to check out that bitcoin um do you remember the name of that off the top of your head that bitcoin i don't it's like Uh. Nazi BTC wallet or something like that. Oh, nice. I'm sure if you Google it, um, <laughs> something like that would come up. There's, I've seen some other great ones too about bots. Uh, there's one that just tweets like financial contributions. They pull off the FEC. Oh, that's uh, super good. Yeah, the one I saw, I think it was more Trump related, but you could obviously program that for anything. And that talk about useful. Yeah, one of the other ones I like is this one that uh, kind of like that, but it's like 
attracts like it has i guess they're working off a list of tech executives that they've determined who have twitters and they track every like follow and unfollow um which ends up being funny in the case of like elon musk because you can see like when he unfollows grimes Uh, (laughs) so yeah oh that's right i never even thought about that the big one is the i think it's the trump bot or whatever where yeah Yeah. that one right yeah that's also yeah and there's like one sort of don jr and like yeah right it is funny it's like don jr unfollowed ivanka (laughs) and it is funny you just start laughing you're like what happened yeah exactly I think a lot of people, you can comment on this, but I don't think a lot of people understand, like, let's say with the bot that tweets financial trend, like FEC, there was one that was definitely going back now thinking about it. It was tweeting people who donated to Donald Trump. And some of these people gave a hundred bucks. It's like Joe Smith, wherever. I don't think they would ever imagine. A lot of people don't even know that that stuff is public and it can quickly be automated and sent out to a lot of people. Do you have any thoughts on that kind of concept, Ali? Um, I mean, I mean yeah, no, it, it is something that it kind of reminds me of the situation like Texas Tribune built this thing called like um, they built a, a salary database of every I think like state maybe federal employee that wasn't like protected. Like I think the IRS and like the FBI are protected from these kinds of bits of information. But like so like for teachers and like all sorts of positions across the entire state. Um, and like these, a lot of these people didn't realize that their salaries were technically public information. And so like the Texas Tribune will get calls about people like getting irritated about it. Um, (laughs) but like it is frustrating and it's like, it it kind of does suck that like, you know, a a random high school teacher salary like is there. And I think that they've actually since like maybe gotten rid of like teacher salaries and like things that are a little more specific like that. But like, um, ultimately like the reason these things are public is because, they're like it's it's good for transparency and accountability to like know where money's going and i mean if i were running that account i don't think i'd be just like throwing out information uh of just like random hundred dollar donors that i think that's like probably irresponsible but that's like a i guess ultimately like a small price to pay and like having a transparent democracy i agree and maybe maybe campaigns and just anyone who takes and solicits donations for public uh that can be public should Maybe it's their job or they should try to just inform people like, look, this is public. Because I think yeah. even before I got into this line of work, I didn't even realize that donations like that were public. Uh, yeah. Even you give five bucks to somebody, any candidate, that's public. Yeah, that shows up. Um, yeah, I, I guess I kind of had an idea of it. I don't know. I, I started, I guess, like paying attention to these kinds of things. Like when I was like at high school and college, like we were already being told, like everything you do is like you're building like a permanent record. Like even your emails, like they could end up public. Like you never know. So I like, I guess, try to approach everything from that sort of mentality. I like that. So even though I'm older than you, it's funny because the permanent record thing that will never that must have been going on. Even though technology changes, the permanent record line has been through high schools since I think schools were founded. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. This will go on your permanent record. I mean, in that case, it's yeah. actually sort of relevant, but... Yeah, now it's like there's literally a permanent record. Like, all those files are probably, like, lost or inaccessible. There probably was not actually, like, a file um, up until, like, everything was digitized. Like, I can't imagine what your permanent record would be in, like, 1993. Right. Besides, like, your transcript. And they just... Schools just straight up lie to you. They're like... Yeah. This... <laughs> Permanent record. That's such a funny line. I don't think that like kids now would buy that, but you never know. That's why I cracked up so much that, uh, not to go off too much on this, but that Edward Snowden named his book "Permanent Record." Like, 
I think that's one of the best titles ever because I, I literally saw it and was just like, I get it, man. Like yeah. I get, I totally get it. Like they just schools just schools just lie to you. And even though the fact that nothing matters, maybe high school a little bit because that'll affect if you go to college. Yeah. But yeah, um, I just want to tell one more quick um, thing that they lied about in school to please, me. Please, <laughs> yeah. This this was always this always cracks me up. I think this will make people laugh. The voting. So in my, I think it was my elementary school, that's also where the people in town voted. Um, so they had the machines in there, I guess like around election time. And I, they didn't want the kids to touch anything. So they said, they, they, I, I just, I still remember it. They said some crazy line, like if you even put your finger on the machine, like it's going to like alert the police or something. Like it was just the craziest lie, but you believe it because you're seven years old. Yeah, you have like no conception. And I was thinking about it, I was like, is that really, like, it seems like a lot of, just expounding on that, a lot of problems in society start there because no matter what the justification was, you lied to us. Um, yeah. And it, the fact that I still remember that, like it made an impression. I think that that stuff builds out and just, it makes an impression on your life. Yeah, I'd be curious to know if like these sorts of other countries like in Scandinavia and Japan and South Korea where like there is like an inherent trusted faith in the government and in, in institutions like I mean one that comes from the institutions actually like functioning properly but two I wonder if that's like built from like when you're in school like not being misled as children um, and like there being a sort of like I don't know like uh, honesty that like exists from when you were a kid so that you don't like feel like this antagonistic relationship with authority yeah all they had to do was just lock the door it seems so simple yeah, exactly <laughs> like, <laughs> it was like how are you gonna get that like, it's not like you can just walk around to school as a child <laughs> that was the craziest thing ever all right let's talk about your piece now you got a big piece coming up in mother jones and it's about bots but it's also about some other things so tell us i know i know it's not out yet but tell us as much as you can about the upcoming story yeah um it's no problem at all because like a lot of the information is kind of out there. I just kind of take like a more critical perspective. Um, basically, the situation is such that like, or to go, kind of go back to the beginning, like after a little bit into we're in the coronavirus, um, I saw this story circulating around like so many major outlets: CNN, NPR, uh, NBC, um, you name it, and the, they all had like the headline that fifty um, percent or almost fifty percent of all tweets about. Uh, the coronavirus were coming from bots and I was like this just you know this sounds wild um, I missed the e like I didn't get an email for that release so I was like kind of surprised and then like I follow some bot researchers on Twitter or people who are in that sort of internet space um, and I hadn't seen anything from these people like about that um, I feel like you know if that were actually the case like uh, it'd be pretty hard to miss um, and if if I missed it, it'd be hard for these people to miss. And so I noticed on their tweets that they were calling this information into question too. Um, but not even just calling it into question the findings, but just the entire framework of it. Um, there were no study had actually been published yet. It was just a press release. Uh, and the findings weren't actually public. And um, a lot of people questioned this kind of rollout, including uh, Darius Kazimi, who's uh, this researcher at, uh, he was formerly the Mozilla Foundation, which is a, a prestigious position. Um, and he has a bunch of accolades um, doing different things in computer science over the years and doing different types of bot research. And um, he was very vocal about how he was frustrated by this. Um, he thought that this probably wasn't the case and that the rollout for it was weird. Um, and then 
after the Black Lives Matter protests started going out in full force, uh, the same researcher, Kathleen Carley from Carnegie Mellon, uh, was quoted in another publication talking about how she had found that about a third of the tweets about BLM um, were coming from bots, and which incensed Darius and like other researchers as well, uh, who, again, noticed that she wasn't putting out any actual information on this um i tried to talk to her she didn't respond to me but she did respond to the new york times and basically what she told them when they asked her similar questions about this was um she didn't want to put out this information because she was afraid of quote-unquote getting scooped before uh her the information like before uh getting published like she was worried that if she put out the raw data someone else would replicate the findings and then beat her to getting published um, which had apparently happened to her before um i talked to darius about this and i kind of agree with his conclusion where like there's no that's not like a legitimate reason to put out potentially incorrect information that hasn't been peer-reviewed yet um, or been checked or vetted or like people have like a chance to even actually respond to like the core findings of the data um this and apparently this is like pretty irregular for what happens in the research community um just of any sort of kind of research uh usually this kind of exception only happens in like life or death matters where there's like a drug um on the market that like can save lives and so saving lives and getting it past like uh bypassing certain processes quickly is like a matter of life and death in that case like maybe you'd bypass some of these things but like um for a story about bots like this where the stakes um aren't that there's not any sort of like upside like that and there's only downside to you being wrong and sort of distorting the discourse and like misinforming people um and so he's pretty frustrated with that and so the story kind of like looks critically at like why there's this repeated these repeated claims coming out of carnegie mellon that like aren't really accountable and how it's just like a sort of bizarre situation um that journalists are kind of running with not to like throw my you know, other media people under the bus. But like, I do think it's complicated. I think there's like a small cohort of journalists who are like well-educated in these kinds of things. Um, and then there's the media writ large who are super good at a lot of things, but this isn't a general news topic. Um, but sometimes it gets treated like that. And when that happens, that's usually when you see stories that make people who are beat reporters on this kind of cringe, which is like a experience, any sort of like report. I'm sure healthcare reporters feel the same way when their stories get written by national writers, but yeah. Right. It seems like one of the chief problems is that, first of all, this is it is a complicated uh, topic it, and it involves technical knowledge and uh, knowledge of computers and how they work. Yeah. Uh, uh, but also it's just science, too. just like understanding science. the scientific process and like how like information is peer reviewed and like how like these are things like I didn't know that most reporters don't. Um, I don't know. One point that was raised to me, too, is like a, a lot of science journalists have been laid off. Um, and like that's how these kinds of stories make it out there, because there's no one kind of like who has a, an understanding of like what actually is um, like information that can and should be published and what should be questioned. Well, that brings up another topic, which is just about when you're a journalist, you should be assigned to. I mean, this sounds obvious, but you should be assigned to write about something that you you know about. But. We've seen this, not to get too much off on this, but we've seen this, especially in the area of writing about right wing and sometimes white supremacists. When that's assigned to the wrong reporter, um, you know, that's how we've, you can comment on this, but that's how we've ended up with some of these profiles that were, yeah, uh, yeah you know what I'm talking about. Definitely. Um, I mean, were there any that you were thinking of in particular? Like, Yeah, I mean, and not to like bag too much, but like that, you know, the famous one of the guy in the New York Times guy yeah. in Ohio. Yeah. 
where it's like some of that too is like that is like the reporter but that's also like a like i think i there was that story like that was called like Amer- an american boy that was like widely panned that was in esquire and like i think the reporter wasn't even like super like excited about that situation so it's like also an editorial thing where like and an institutional thing where like editors and institutions should be thinking more critically about how they're approaching these kinds of things and like not even like letting reporters get close to those kinds of situations to begin with um and then this like even a larger conversation about like newsroom diversity and like what is considered objectivity and like what is considered uncouth and, and gauche and like uh sort of like no and like objective and like all those kinds of questions um but yeah it's, it gets i don't know there's a whole lot to it i think i could not agree more and one of the reasons that i'm i'm such a, an advocate for newsroom diversity is not just that it's the right thing to do and that a newsroom should reflect a country but also that literally we that's how you can um, that's how some of these things we can avoid happening uh, is just are we bring our own life experience to journalism. And I think when we're writing critically about, let's say, we would have ended up with, I think, a lot less, you know, Trump supporter in the diner, that kind of thing, if we had a newsroom that more reflected America. Totally. Yeah, because it's like I, one thing I think that a lot of the media still doesn't understand is like, you know, the core of Trump's base, like, isn't like rural Americans in diners. There's not that many rural Americans to begin with. I, I mean, I, it's like wealthy suburbanites who were not experiencing economic anxiety. Not to say that the concerns of the rural voter in diners don't matter. Like those people are left behind for sure and like need to be listened to. Um, but not like because they did or didn't vote for Trump, but because like they're, they're being like just not, their needs are not being attended to at all. Right. We, we would hope that myth, uh, Joy Reid and the Washington Post have both published some articles that the, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but that the average Trump supporter actually is uh, wealthier than the average American. Uh, I yeah. Don't know if that's, yeah, you, you saw it. I, I didn't see that specifically. I've followed Sarah Jones's reporting on it. She's a writer at New York now, um, New York Magazine, but I, I don't know exactly where she's from, but she's from rural America and like... Um, tries to like sort of dispel these prevailing myths and like does a really good job of it. Ali, any final words on uh, bots or any story or the story you have coming out for Mother Jones or did we cover it all? No, we did. Um, I'm doing another story too on the mainstreaming of QAnon and like how it's basically at the point where it is mainstream now and uh, which is just kind of what we covered. And um, yeah, like you said, educate yourself and be smart. I'm going to have to have you back on then. We're going to have to talk about <laughs> I'd love to. And then I can tell you more about what's <laughs> the goings on of Q in this neighborhood. Oh, uh, yeah. It sounds like a podcast in its own, right? <laughs> Allie Breland, great having you on Counterintelligence, and I'm looking forward to the next one. Thank you for listening. Follow Forensic News on Twitter at Forensic Newsnet. Counterintelligence is at Intel Pod. My personal account is Eric LeVay. Support Forensic News on Patreon. Subscribe to Counterintelligence everywhere you listen to podcasts. This is Eric LeVay, and this is Counterintelligence.